0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Good morning, folks. I am Larry
1: Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's great to be with you. I had weird things, weird ads playing in my ear, but that's the beauty of live radio. Anyway, this is WABC Radio, and you can live stream us, importantly, LarryKudlowShow.com. Live stream us all across the country and around the world. And throughout the solar system, technical issues notwithstanding. Actually, I'm in studio today, which is even more fun. So, a um, bunch of things to talk about, as always. Shows loaded up. We've got Senator Rick Scott from Florida, the head of the uh, Republican Senate Campaign Committee, coming on. Bill O'Reilly's coming on. House member Lee Zeldin's coming on. Uh, former Trump aide Joe Grogan's coming on. And Congressman Jim Jordan's coming on. I have to begin – I mean, I didn't really like to begin with financial stuff, but I really have to begin with the stock market story because it is in front-page news, and the market is uh, getting clobbered left and right. And and let me say, look, um, people are talking about a bear market. We, we've we been in a bear market territory for quite some time. Definitions don't really matter. But here's why. here's why I begin with this story that really – The vast majority of investors, all right, are ordinary working folks. There's over 100 million. I think it's up to about 110 million people are invested in the stock market, you know, through their IRAs or 401Ks. It's their retirement savings. And that's what concerns me, it's the reason I want to talk about it this morning. Uh, because those folks are getting hurt. Now, they aren't the richest people in the country. These are working folks. They don't own, they don't own the majority of all these wealth assets. Uh, majority of it's owned by the, you know, the, the heavy hitters, the super rich. I get that. But, you know, for a lot of people, they might have built up $60,000, $70,000, $80,000, maybe $100,000 in retirement savings over the years. And that's a lot of money for them. You know, their, their average earnings might be 60000 a year. And they put money away in various accounts. Sometimes the employer pitches in. And they're good savers. So when the stock market goes down, as it has, they get hurt. It's a very important uh, issue. They're not rich. They don't own the bulk of the wealth. They get their monthly reports from their financial planners or their brokerage firms, you know, whatever they're called. And I think folks are worried. And I think there's a lot of angst out there about the economy anyway, with high gasoline prices, high food prices, baby formulas not on the shelves, all these things converging. There's a strong lack of confidence going on. So I thought I'd spend a moment... On the market now. Look at. Let me say this point for those of you who have a retirement savings account. You know, you get a monthly report uh, from your financial planner or whoever. Most of my whole career, I've made this point: the the best investment strategy is to not look at what's going on today, to not react or overreact to the ups and downs, even when you have like a 20% correction or a 30% correction. You know, we're about 20% now. It's not bottomed yet. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Stay the course. I think the best investment strategy is to own stocks for the long run. You're not going to outguess you're not going to outguess the market. You're not going to outtime the market. You don't do it for a living. Some people do it for a living. We'll leave it to them. Although I got to tell you, hedge fund managers—you know, many of them, most of them—when you look at the uh, data, underperform the market. Really, I know they give themselves a lot of money. They're rich people. They'll tell you how important it is. They'll tell you they're going to take you out at this precise moment, put you in at that precise moment. Most of them miss the turns. Oh, I have a brilliant investment, this one and that one. Look, there's a handful of them that are really good. Most of them are really bad. And they charge you an arm and a leg. And they sweep the profits off the table. Jeremy Siegel, professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Bert Malkiel professor at Princeton. I knew Bert at Princeton. These guys wrote years ago, years ago, that the best strategy for the stock market is to own stocks for the long term. Own the index for the long term, like the S&P 500 index. You're owning, the, you're owning U.S. companies. You're owning foreign companies. There's a lot of good index. Exchange traded funds are index funds, and they're cheap. And you have the power. You 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 don't have to let them tax you. You can figure out your own tax situation. And you can, you know, run your own life. Your hands are not put into some fancy-dancy striped pants, Wall Street, whatever. I'm not against the Wall Street crowd. I came from Wall Street, although I haven't been there in 30 years. But the point is stocks for the long run is your best strategy. Long run, I'm talking 30, 40, 50 years. I'm saying a young person today in her mid-20s starting out a career should be putting money away in these index funds, which are so cheap, 20 cents on the dollar, something like that, maybe even 15 cents on the dollar. That's all it costs. And keep putting money in there. I mean, even now, let's say, so, you know, you're down, stock market's down about 20%, the NASDAQ's down much more. I'll walk through this during our stock market segment. Some of these leading sectors, like retailing and home building and uh, semiconductors, they're down 40% this year. It's a big correction. And uh, my advice, be honest with you, you know, if you have some kind of plan or self-discipline, Dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging means the market is off. You should be averaging in some percentage, proportion of your paycheck. You know, oh, no, the market's getting killed. I want to sell. Don't sell. That's a terrible strategy because you know what? When the market rebounds, you'll be out and you'll miss it. You say, well, how can you say buy now? Buy now because there's some weakness, but you should be buying anyway throughout your career. This is retirement savings for the long run. There are tax-advantaged accounts, and you should be involved in that. Current bear market is not the end of the world. You know, I mean, look, uh, semi-seriously, if you're really faint of heart, don't, don't open your monthly statement. Don't even look at it. All right, in the front page of the Wall Street Journal, there's, you know, a story about the bear market. It's all across the country. you got all these super bears around. Oh, the world is coming to an end. You know, look, I don't like Joe Biden either, but this is a different matter. This is a different matter. You know, maybe a little deep prayer and meditation to get you through this period. But really, a smart investor would be adding, for, and again, you're going to add today, and if the market's down 10% in the next two months, add some more. And if it's down another 10%, add some more and then hang on to it. I'm talking about these index funds where you're not picking individual stocks. You're buying the entire index. And there's some great ones out there, a whole bunch of good ones. So that's really my thought. And I'm trying to be, you know, calm people down. It's not the end of the world. Now, let me say a couple of things here. I think right now this cyclical temporary uh, sell-off in stocks, I mean, this has a lot to do with the lousy uh, economic policies going on in Washington. I mean, I think that you're not going to improve the stock market until we get rid of this left-wing, woke, progressive, big government, socialist economics of Joe Biden. I mean, they've created, you know, excessive spending and borrowing and money printing and over-regulating and the war against the fossil fuel industry and uh, $6 at the gallon gasoline and $110 in the open market for oil and food prices have skyrocketed and in some cases the shelves are bare. I mean, I think that is a function of the failure of this woke, progressive, socialist approach that the Bidens have taken. Spend more, borrow more, run the economy. You know, central planning, like the old Soviet Union. We will make all the decisions. And this insanity on climate change. So they're trying to kill fossil fuels. I mean, we should be, we should be, we should be uh, leasing more. We should be permitting more. We should be fracking more. Everybody knows that except the Biden administration. But that's my point. So they've created all this inflation. You're running now 8 to 10% inflation. Interest rates in the market are going up. Wage rates, wages after inflation are going down. So there's an impoverishment there. And it's affecting the stock market. Earnings are going to slow down. High inflation, rising interest rates, bad for stocks. And this is all closely linked to the market correction I hate to say it, but wages, I mean, we've had a pretty good labor market. People are returning to work. They're not new jobs, per se, but they are coming back to work. Wages are running 6 7%, but the CPI is running 8.5%, and the PPI's is running 11%, and import prices are running 12.5%. So people are losing ground. It's It's an unfortunate situation. This has affected the stock market. You know, some of these indexes, you can, again, you can buy these indexes, but the S and P uh, 500 retailing index down 31 percent, plus 10 percent inflation down 40 percent. Home builders are down 40 percent. Cyclical stocks, cyclicals, consumer discretionary, all 40 percent. That you know that tells you we are and we have been in a bear market all year. And I don't want to bore you with the numbers, but I'm saying you know this is the story. I just don't want you to panic or sell because this is going to be a short story. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't know how long the market will fall. You know, we may be in for a tough period for the rest of this year. It could spill over into next year. I mean, mortgage rates are up five and a half percent. Mortgage rates have doubled, 30-year fixed five and a half percent. That's over twice what it was a year ago. That gives you a hint about the difficulties in the housing market. And interest rates are going to go up some more. The Fed is going to raise their target rate. I know they've been slow. They are behind the curve. I've been very critical of the Fed. But now they're going to move. And when they move, they'll move too far and too fast. That's what they always do because their models are terrible. So that's another, you know, issue for the stock market. We'll talk about this with our experts towards towards the middle of the show. The other thing that's so concerning, Biden... And his team, I mean, they've said they don't look at the stock market. They don't care about the stock market. Well, that's dumb. I mean, the stock market tells you a lot about the future of business. You know, right now the market's pointing to an inflation and a recession. So they might want to look at the stock market. My former boss, Donald Trump, liked to know about the market. Every time I walked into the Oval, every day, he wanted to know about stocks. Because... Stocks tell you, you know, how are we doing? It's a good barometer of the health and wealth of the country. Right now, it's signaling thumbs down. It's just like the polls. The latest AP poll, Biden's approval is 39, disapproval is 60. Well, that's what the stock market is saying. CNN poll, 86% are either concerned or scared. Only 14% are excited or optimistic. All right, so that. But that's what the stock market's telling you. It's the same thing. That's why the stocks, to some extent, are a daily scorecard. And right now, year to date, with stocks off 20% plus, the Nasdaq's off a lot more. Some of these indexes are off more. We have a problem. So I'll just conclude by saying the problem to me is the wrong economic policy philosophy. This is a big government Policy. It's an overregulation. The Uncle Sam in Washington, Uncle Joe in Washington knows better than you and me how to run our lives. It knows better. Well, it doesn't know better. They are climate crazy people, ideological left wing climate people. There is no immediate climate risk. There is no existential risk. We should worry about clean air and clean water in the next hundred years. By the way, technological advances, sequestration, carbon capture and storage is fabulous stuff. Fossil fuels are going to always be here. These people want to kill fossil fuels. So look what they've done to energy prices and the inflation rate. They think they know best. I think free market capitalism knows best. I think you and I and our friends and our loved ones and our families and our business, we know best. Not the government. So that's the problem. All this woke, progressive, central planning, big government socialism is taking a toll on the stock market. Inflation up, interest rates up, economic outlook poor. Is it recessionary? Probably. It's certainly inflationary and it's stagflationary. Everything is about confidence. Confidence is so important. Confidence. We need the rule of law. We need free markets. We need limited government. We need a sound, reliable king dollar. We need low tax rates. We'll get back to that, okay? Right now, people are worried. I don't think they believe in the great American idea that the country is going to be better tomorrow than it is today. Confidence is low. I get that. But I will just say in conclusion, folks, don't panic. Remember stocks for the long run is the best investment strategy. Remember putting your retirement savings into the stock market and you're looking at a 40 or 50 year horizon. And remember this, this woke, progressive socialist story in Washington's going to change. Trust me on this. The cavalry is coming. Trust me, folks. The cavalry is coming. I'm Larry Kudlow.
0: We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. we got everything straightened out. Life is good. The ABC is good. Please join us during the week. During the week. Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. You'll love it. Please join us. We're doing great. Having lots of fun covering the beat. So this is going to be a short one here because we've got a hard break coming up. But I just want to throw this into the pot. So you hear this, Hillary did it. Okay, this you know this whole Russia collusion, Alpha Bank hoax with Donald Trump that dogged him for years during the campaign and the first three years of his presidency. They tried to wreck his presidency. They didn't, by the way, but they caused a lot of trouble. Now we know from the John Durham investigations and they're in court and they're uh, interviewing witnesses under oath And Hillary's own campaign manager, right, Robbie Mook, I don't know the guy, but he basically said they were selling this Alpha Bank crap, Alpha Bank being a big Russian bank. This was part of the Russian collusion. Vladimir uh, Putin and the oligarchs were running the Trump administration. Anyway, it was all a big, fat lie. Big, fat lie. But, and I'll get to this later in the show, Hillary helped launch the lie. She did it. She knew about it and approved it. And she's been lying through her teeth for the past five or six years. And by the way, so did this, uh, so did this uh, Jake, uh, whatever his name is, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. He was just as bad. I'm Cudlow. We'll get back to this story. Hillary did it.
0: From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you today. It's a beautiful day outside. Very warm here in the city of New York, and I hope it's fabulous wherever you are. You can live stream us over the internet, right? LarryKudlowShow.com. Right, that's still our thing, right, kids? LarryKudlowShow.com. You hear us all over the country. A lot of you know we we have great national following on the internet. You can hear us. Uh, Overseas and um, throughout the solar system. So I want to come back to this Hillary did it. This is such an important issue. Look, this idea, this Russia-Trump collusion, is just utter nonsense wrong. I mean, the guy was impeached for this. He wasn't convicted, but he was impeached. This was a Democratic, phony... Make up a story, throw mud at Trump. It started during the 2016 campaign, and then they continued it during his presidency. They tried to ruin his presidency. They tried to steal his presidency. And now, years later, through the great work of John Durham, Special uh, Counsel John Durham, and others, we have learned that the whole story was false, phony, faux. Wrong. Lies. Lies. And they just kept pounding away. And the media, the mainstream media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN. I mean, who? I think the New York Times got a Pulitzer Prize for this. One of them got a Pulitzer Prize. And the whole thing was r- a f- false. Completely wrong. Give the Pulitzer Prizes back. Seriously. That's what we've learned. Now, right now they're in court, they're in court prosecuting this Clinton lawyer named Sussman, Michael Sussman, who was, I'm saying he was a Clinton campaign lawyer, and he sold this dirty trick story that this alpha bank in Russia was hooked into Trump, they were communicating constantly, the alpha bank run by Russian oligarchs, friends of Vladimir Putin, therefore Vladimir Putin was influencing Trump. And Vladimir Putin was, you know, happy that Trump was president. All BS we have found. Utterly BS. A dirty trick for the ages. Now, here's the point. You know, what we're learning in the court, we're in federal court now prosecuting this Clinton lawyer who lied to the FBI and the CIA he lied to them. He said he was just passing along information and he had no contact with the Clinton campaign and that he was, he was not representing any clients, but that as a friend of the FBI and a friend of the CIA, and those guys bought it hook, line, and sinker and then sold it. The media sold it. Now, I mean, actually, look at the Wall Street Journal editorial today. It's a lovely editorial. I mean, there's plenty about this everywhere. I don't know about the Post and the Times, but uh, Washington Times, Washington Examiner, all the good conservative websites. But basically, Sussman lied to the FBI. He lied to the CIA. There was never any secret Trump connection to Russia's Alpha Make. Let me repeat that. There was never any secret connection. It was a lie. And the Democrats kept this up with the left-wing media. And winds up, you know, impeaching Trump in the House over Russian connection. A total lie. One of the worst miscarriages of justice. And it did damage to his presidency, although he's such a strong executive and his policies were so damn good. We had such fabulous prosperity. And by the way, Vladimir Putin didn't invade anybody under Trump. And we're going to have Bill O'Reilly on at the other side of the hour, how it was Trump who ended these crazy terrorists, al-Baghdadi and uh, Soleimani from Iran. That was done under – I mean, I could go on and on. I am proud, proud to have served as the director of the National Economic Council and worked with President Trump on a daily basis. Proud of it. But I'm saying this thing just galls me. We learn now from – the The Hillary campaign manager, a guy named Robbie Mook, said in court that Hillary gave the okay to sell this phony story to the media. She gave the okay. And Biden's current national security advisor, a guy named Jake Sullivan, who was a Clinton campaign advisor, he went out there and sold this phony story. To the media, constantly sold this phony, phony story. October 2016, Mr. Sullivan issued a statement mentioning the Slate story. Slate wrote about this could be the most direct, direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow. Mrs. Clinton tweeted Mr. Sullivan's statement with the comment: "Computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank." Apparently, they lie. This guy Sullivan should not be in office right now. He has he owes a high. He, he this is a guy who's negotiating and talking to Russia. Really, after he bought this Russian lie hook, line, and sinker. Really. They should all be behind bars, including Hillary Clinton. This was an incredible lie. Dirty tricks. The worst dirty tricks campaign in history. And thank goodness it's coming out in the courts. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. On the other side,
0: we're going to talk to uh, Senator Rick Scott. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right.
1: Welcome back, everybody. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show my great friend, Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Former governor of Florida, by the way, he is also chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So the cavalry's coming and Mr. Scott is uh, leading the cavalry. So thank you, Senator Scott. It's great. I just I had a bunch of things to ask you, um, but I just wanted to mention. I don't know if you saw the Wall Street Journal editorial. Hillary Clinton did it. You know, this whole dirty trick. There was no Russian uh, Trump collusion. There was no Alpha Bank Trump collusion. Vladimir Putin did not have any any inside stuff going on with Trump. Uh, Hillary lied. Her campaign lawyer lied. Also, Senator Scott, maybe worst of all, the national uh, Biden's national security guy, Jake Sullivan, was part of that big lie, and he's negotiating with the Russians. So I just wanted to give you a bite of that apple.
2: It makes you mad. I mean, why? I mean, think about what she did. She tried to ruin the Trump presidency. Yes. She tried to make sure you know. And and by the way, I mean, this is this is national security. <clears throat> Sorry, why you know to put handcuff Trump's ability to do certain things? Because if anything he did with around Russia, it you know they would yell and say, oh, there was some sort of collusion there. So why would you want to do it to the person that runs your country? She did it because she's a mean, evil. Person, mm. these people need to be held accountable to the full extent of the law. And how can a guy like Jake Sullivan, you know, have a job right now? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Do you trust him? Of course not. Absolutely. You know, um, you're <laughs> talking about how I mean
1: she, she is. Mean, by the way, she's always been mean. Uh, I don't know about her husband Bill, but she has been mean. But here's the thing, Senator Scott: uh, a, your J, this Jake Sullivan hook is very important because he was part of the lie that sold this, they tried to bring down. They
2: knew it, and they let it go on and on and
1: on. So he can't be negotiating with the Russians or anybody else because the guy has no credibility. But that, you know, they, Senator Scott, they tried to bring down the Trump presidency. That's the way I'm looking at this now. They literally, you know, they kept it going, and it occupied the president's time, and we had to have a whole impeachment hearing. They
2: tried to bring down the presidency. It just, I mean, you think, why would, I mean, look, you know, I've I've run for office. You don't want to lose your election, right? But do you want, you want the person that wins to fail? Mm. No. I mean, this is our country. I mean, how are you a patriot if you're trying to bring down and an, an create an inability for the president of the United States to do his job? And, Exactly what their intention was. I mean, I, I'm glad what Durham's doing. I hope he gets to the bottom of it. I hope Americans all understand exactly this dirty tricks they were doing. And if they violated the law, they ought to be in prison. Yes, sir.
1: All right, switching gears, Senator Rick Scott. Uh, Louisiana judge ruled that Title 42 cannot be taken down. Now, uh, the Bidens are going to go crazy about this. Uh, I know there's been some efforts in the Senate to legislate a continuation of Title 42, or I know Bill Haggerty, Senator Haggerty, is a good friend of both of ours, um, would change the health mandate to fentanyl rather than COVID. Uh, What do you think is going to happen
2: here, sir? Unfortunately, I mean, this is just a matter of time. Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, comes and testifies. He says, oh, the border's secure. It's a complete lie. They don't care. I don't get it. The Biden administration doesn't care that over 100,000 Americans died of a drug overdose. I mean, you just you hear the stories of these young people that made a mistake. They bought a Xanax online and then they're dead within minutes. I mean, they shouldn't have bought the Xanax online, but no one anticipated that you make that that mistake and you're going to die. That's going on all across the country. And the Biden administration, they're, they're doing nothing about it. We've caught 45 people on the terrorist watch list on the border. Think of how many people we didn't caught. The Biden administration, they don't care. They, the border is completely open. Mm. And it's it just, you think, what is their purpose? Why don't they care about Americans? Because we've got, we've got this all over the country. So Title 42 is a big deal today. But the reality is, why would they intentionally not finish the wall? Why they wouldn't not turn on the lights when we have cameras um, that along the border? Why would they intentionally shut down our border security? What is their purpose other than there's more crime in the country, there's more death in the country? I don't get it, and they can't explain it. You know, that's
1: it. It goes back to a great point. I don't see enough people talking about the wall, uh, which was partially built during the Trump years. Money was appropriated, and the Biden stopped the whole thing. Uh, President Trump himself has, I mean, he said it to me, but he's tweeted it out. Uh, You've got, you know, expensive machinery rusting (laughs) on these sites where the wall was supposed to have been built. I mean, Remain in Mexico is working. The wall was working, would have worked. The border uh, patrol people wanted the wall. And um, people talk more about the wall, Rick Scott. And I think also, you know, can you legislate anything? Could you win a vote in the Senate on... Continuing Title Forty Two or turning it into? A, a yeah, but fentanyl. Schumer won't let us
2: have a vote. Oh, he won't. We believe uh, we we yeah. we believe we would win the vote. He won't let us have the vote. But stop and think about what they're doing, Larry. So, so Trump busted his butt to get border security. The wall was part of it, not the only thing. It was part of it. There's places where you need cameras and you need lights and you need roads and you need drones. But so it's all the above. But what they did was they, when the ball was almost finished, and the only thing left, I've been down there a bunch. Mm. The only thing left was a gate.
3: They just didn't pick it
2: up, mm. or you had the cameras up. They didn't electrify them, mm. or they had almost the road finished. They stopped it. I mean, it's it's all in it's intentional, allowing people to come across our border. I'm from an immigration state. I am pro-immigration, legal immigration. I want people to live our dream. That's a capitalistic dream that you have to work hard to get ahead. I want them to come into our country legally. I want to continue to build the greatest country ever created in the history of the world. But I don't want drugs. I don't want terrorists. I don't want crime. And what the Biden administration says, we don't care. We are gonna make it open. It's just like, I don't get the intent. Mm. of hurting so many people in this country. Uh, over 100,000 people died, and 70% of it was fentanyl overdoses. Mm. And that's not – its you know, it's, everybody thinks it's always, always a bunch of drug addicts. No, it's your kid that – he just you know, he made a mistake, he bought his annex, and then he's dead. Mm. Just like that.
1: You know, that just really well put, Senator Scott. I just want to say, listening to you on all those counts, legal versus illegal immigrants, the drug problem, the need for the wall – That's great. Really, that's a great policy or set of policy views. Uh, So you're heading up the Senate Campaign Committee, and uh, that puts you uh, in in the front rank, one of the generals in the cavalry that I hope is coming in November. Let me ask you. Now we've talked about this, but uh, on the radio, will the will the Republicans in the Senate and running for the Senate, and you know either new seats or running for reelection. Can they – are they capable of putting together a message to the public that we want to stop inflation? Inflation's the number one issue, and there's basically two major issues here. One is we want to end the war against fossil fuel so we can produce more oil and gas and get gasoline prices down. And two, we want to stop this massive federal spending, balance the budget – So we can increase growth and reduce inflation. So I've got two segments here. I'm saying to the GOP, as the cavalry is coming, uh, can we improve energy policy and we can stop spending, move towards a balanced budget with low tax rates so inflation would go down and growth would go up? What do you think? Messaging, Senator Rick Scott? Is that possible? I'm asking too much.
2: No, 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 no. That's what, that's what your expect, expectations should be. I mean, Larry, when, you, when somebody comes and asks you for your vote, they're gonna, they should be saying to you, how can I make your life better? Mm-hmm. The most important thing for most families is they want self-sufficiency. Either that means a job or that means a government that doesn't cause massive inflation. That's, I mean, those are, the, those are the things that you expect out of your government. So Republicans, have, have to, we have to say, these are the things we're going to do to create a better job market and to make sure we get rid of inflation, which means what we've got to do is we cut taxes and fees on American families and businesses. We've got to balance the budget. We've got to fix the supply chain crisis. How in the world can we have a, a baby formula shortage in the United States of America, in Brazil, in Panama, and every place else in the world has plenty of it, but we don't. We've got to reduce the permitting times to open a business, reduce the regulatory environment, we have got to get energy independent now. We can't, and we and we can't say, well, yeah, whenever we get those batteries fixed, so we can do the solar. It might, might be ten or twenty years. No, and then we got to start paying down our debt. And the Federal Reserve is starting to start acting responsibly. Nine trillion dollar balance sheet, is crazy. They've got to they got to downsize their balance sheet because it's all those things have all doing the opposite, which is what the Biden Democrats are doing. All those things have caused inflation and caused us a negative GDP. And I think they're causing the Biden bear market
1: in stocks.
2: Oh, I mean, interest rates are up and and, and the market's way down. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's it, they're killing it. Look at how you saw targets numbers the other day.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, just in, I think in one day, target was stock was down 25 percent. Inflation is just, you know, it's it's hurting the consumer and it's hurting their ability to make a profit. So, so I mean, but what they're doing for people right now in this country. I mean, I grew up in a poor family. We lived in public housing. I watched my mom struggle to put food on. Right now, think of what these families have to say. Can I put gas in the car to get to work? Or can I feed those kids I've got? And they're making choices. There's more people going to food banks right now in Florida that have, that had never gone before because of this. Is that
1: um, that's so interesting because Florida is such a prosperous state. Um, is that because there's no workfare? requirements, is that the problem? Because the economy in Florida, is, my understanding is it's quite good.
2: But we need, first off, we've got to get people back to work. I mean, think about it. When you get back to work, one, you feel better, right? Number number two is you're in this, you, you, you've you got skin in the game. You you pay payroll taxes, you pay income taxes, hmm. you can buy things, you pay sales tax, you buy a house, you pay property tax. So you're, it's how in our entire economy and more and more people have, have success. But what we've got to do we can't say if you're able-bodied. They, they. I don't want able-bodied Americans to spend more time trying to find another government program. They ought to be spend their time to find another job, mm-hmm. you know, and constantly better job. That's what we all do. So we ought to have we ought to have work requirements for people. If you, if you know, we need safety nets. If you need it for a short period of time, but if you're able-bodied, you shouldn't. You, you shouldn't. You know, put there's plenty of jobs out there. You shouldn't be having to worry about food stamps or just trying to get on Obamacare or, you know, or having some other program, you should be out there working and trying to better yourself. Mm,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great message too. I think people totally agree with that. So um Senator Scott, the cavalry is coming. You're on the lead. Uh What are the toughest Senate races that you can share with us?
2: Yeah, the, the hardest, first off, we have 21 Republicans up and there's only 14 Democrats. So that doesn't sound good, but, Biden's numbers are horrible because of inflation, the energy prices, re- highest record of gas prices, of open border. Afghanistan would just withdraw was despicable. So so re- people want to re- elect Republicans. Ron Johnson has the hardest race of our incumbents to defend, mm. but he's going to win. He stands, he stands for fiscal responsibility. He cares about his people. The Democrats, they're going to have their in August, is going to be a a Bernie Sanders disciple. We've got Pennsylvania, which will be one of our hardest races to defend. Pat Toomey's not running for re-election. So it's going to come, it's down Oz and Dave McCormick, Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick. Hopefully they will get decided in the next week or so. Fetterman, the guy on the Democrat side, is another Bernie Sanders disciple. Mm. I'm in North Carolina giving a speech this morning. The Democrat is another Bernie Sanders uh, disciple, Sherry Beasley. We already have ads up about her. She was Supreme Court Justice in North Carolina and let. Unbelievable, horrible criminals out. Uh, out, vacated their sentences and let them out early. Mm. I think. I think Herschel Walker it looks like he's way ahead in his primary. He's he's leading Warnick in the general election. Uh, we've got a primary out in uh, Nevada, uh, but we're going to beat Cortez Master there. We can beat Kelly in Arizona. We can beat Hassam up uh, New Hampshire. So I think we're going to. I think we have every reason to believe we can get to fifty-four, maybe even more Republican seats. Then we've got to go fix this country. We. To say we're hell bent on balancing this budget getting this inflation under control getting us back to a country that believes in capitalism and is building another a better and better capitalist system.
1: See, I think that's a great message. Just you know, what you said earlier regarding immigration and the wall and 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 that that conservatives favor legal immigration and Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great message. Uh, I think protecting the border is a great message. And what you just said, I think a balanced budget, curb spending, curb inflation, keep interest rates down, boost the stock market. You know, I'd like to hear people talk about a balanced budget, but, you know, not root canal without Novocaine. This is a balanced budget that would have low taxes but would trim spending, unnecessary spending of which there's trillions in that budget. I mean, balanced budget would send that message. Balanced budget would cut inflation, Senator Scott. You know, I think these are
2: great Absolutely. messages
1: for the GOP.
2: Larry, I did it. I did it eight years as governor. I balanced the budget every year, and I actually paid off of third estate debt, hmm. over $10 billion, and I cut over $10 billion in taxes. This is, and cut cut the permitting time, reduced the regulatory environment, and guess what? We added in eight years 1.7 million jobs. Hmm. Came number one in higher education, top five in K 12 education, 47 years <laughs> from our crime rate. All right. All the things we
1: believe in are all doable. I got to jump. Senator Rick Scott, one of the leading statesmen in the Senate and leading the charge for the re election campaign. Thank you, sir. We're all obliged to you. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be back with Bill O'Reilly, who's fighting terrorism on the other side of the break. Please stay with us.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. It gives me great pleasure to bring on Bill O'Reilly. Friend, he is a legend. He's got a great new book out. Bill O'Reilly was, of course, the famous anchor of The O'Reilly Factor and host of No Spin News on First TV. He's got the O'Reilly Update, a syndicated radio show right here on WABC. And um, his fabulous new book, Killing the Killers, The Secret War Against Terrorists. And I will just say, folks, I have read all of the Killing series. They all are amazing. They all become number one on the bestseller list. Anyway, Bill O'Reilly, welcome, sir.
5: Hey, Larry, we appreciate you man. in. It is number one on the New York Times list tomorrow and the following Sunday, so I'm sure they're thrilled over there, you know? <laughs> it's
1: fabulous. I don't know if they're thrilled with you, but I'm thrilled with you and your fabulous books. Thank you. I appreciate it. So that. listen, you know me. I read the books before I get you on the air. I, yeah. I, I got through this one. I'm about 80 percent through. OK, so that's pretty good. And in our you know period of time here, I would like you to focus on two things. Uh, in the Trump years, they got Baghdadi, the ISIS leader, and they got uh, Qasem Soleimani, the uh, Iranian terrorist Revolutionary Guard leader, which I thought were phenomenal. Obama couldn't do it. Trump did. He got him. And I wondered if you could just spend a little bit of time that we have talking about those two things because i I just think those are huge huge victories in the war against terror and 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 uh, also frankly you know bill i worked for trump i think they were trump victories also
5: well they changed the equation for the world um and trump was never getting proper credit and interestingly enough he doesn't really promote that much Mm -hmm. as much as he might so uh bigger picture, and you need to understand that, was that when Obama was elected in 2008, he was not a terror warrior. In fact, in 2011, he withdrew all the troops, all U.S. troops from Iraq. And he made a big deal out of it, and press conference and all that. As soon as he did that, ISIS then moved into Iraq and took over half the country and killed tens of thousands of people. And we all remember the beheadings on camera on the Internet. Four Americans al-Baghdadi executed, including Kayla Mueller, a 26-year-old woman from Arizona. So this was public enemy number one for America. Now, in the last two years of Obama's administration, to be fair, he was so embarrassed by this that he became a terror warrior um, and started to be much more aggressive in deploying American surveillance. Trump then was elected, and one of his campaign promises were, I'm going to destroy ISIS, which he did. But how did he do it? Trump basically allowed the CIA and the NSA, National Security Agency, without interference or micromanagement from the State Department, that's very important, because he didn't get the bureaucracy in there, he allowed them to track these guys down and assassinate them. And one of the very interesting stories I tell in Killing the Killers is that the only way they got Baghdadi, nobody could find him, all right? Not even the ISIS people knew where he was. He had a courier because they couldn't do phone calls. And to this day, al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram can't use the telephone. They use it, we pick it up. So they have couriers, and one of the couriers was arrested by the Turkish intelligence apparatus and hand it over immediately to the cia which is what always happens turks don't want um muslims in their prison okay unless they're subversions to turkey but there is a law as you know well well no larry in the united states passed after abu Ghraib, that no u.s personnel can use coerced interrogation methods on anybody so what does the cia do with this courier hands them over to Iraqi intelligence. Ah, yes. No rules. Right. They're all Saddam's ex-guys. <laughs> so you can imagine what they do. So uh, you heard the mantra after Abu Ghraib, torture doesn't work. It works, Larry. So this Turk, this uh, uh, courier, he gives up al-Baghdadi, gives up where he is, gives up this whole operation, command and control, and the U.S. Special forces go in, and we describe the raid in vivid detail. Yes. Then Trump makes the announcement. We got Baghdadi. Now, it was different with Soleimani. I'm not going to give you all the stuff. I want people to read the book. <laughs> that was more space. We tracked this guy from space, and it's an incredible story. And one more thing. The reason Americans don't know this and why Killing the Killers is sold about 150,000 copies in two weeks is because nobody knows any of this. Mm. It's all classified information. They know it was done. They don't know how it was done.
1: But Maney, uh he was taunting Trump publicly, taunting him. And it's then what did he do? He went out uh, on some road trip and car, and we just nailed him. I don't think he ever believed he would be caught, but he was. And, and that's, I, just, well, I don't know, I think that's really, I mean, the whole book is interesting, in, 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 including the Osama bin Laden part of the book, which is also quite interesting. But
5: I just. Yeah, we opened with that. I thought the. Sol- so let me tell you about Soleimani and Trump.
1: Yeah, that's the okay, thing.
5: So the Iranian government in general haunted Trump. And as you know, the way that Trump um, governed is deal making. That's what he did. And he was fairly successful, particularly in the economic world where you live, Mm -hmm. in making deals. All right? He tried to make a deal with Iran. Trump did. Just like he made a deal with Putin. But Iran turned around and disrespected him and used Soleimani to do it. Now, Soleimani uh, is one of the most wicked individuals. You know, it's like, who's working? bin Laden, al-Baghdadi, or Soleimani make the call. I mean, it's, they're, they're all in hell. So Soleimani goes to Iraq try to foster a riot in the green zone with the U.S. Embassy. Mm. He, he, go, he leaves Iran, goes there, and tries to have the embassy burned down. The Marines protect the embassy. It was close, but they did not Uh, Soleimani's guys did not get in and do the damage. Trump then was uh, immediately alerted to this. The U.S. Embassy under siege. That's when the space surveillance kicked in. So they knew Soleimani was in Iraq. And then they had eyes on him. So Soleimani goes around midnight to the Baghdad airport and flies to Damascus to see his buddy Assad. Mm Mm-hmm the president of Syria. We're tracking him every step of the way. And we have CIA operatives in the Damascus airport. Gets off the plane, but he never gets off the plane. Everybody stays on the plane. It was a commercial flight. Soleimani and his thugs get off, but they don't go down to jet. There's cars waiting for them and they're whisked away to Assad. They meet with Assad for a couple hours. They come back to Damascus airport. We're still tracking everything he does get on another flight, and fly back to Baghdad. Get off the flight, two big SUVs, Toyota cruisers, eight guys, Soleimani and seven other guys, big shots in the Revolutionary Guard or in the the Iraqi resistance. They go to a very secret exit of the airport, on their way to Baghdad, Hellfire missile, boom. (laughs) The only thing left of Soleimani was a finger with a ring on it. That's how they ID'd him. I have a picture of that in Mm. Killing the Killer.
1: I mean, it's a fabulous story. You tell it beautifully, as you always do. Your books are so well written. You can't put this stuff down. But I just think, uh, Bill, the way Trump operated, as you said, he just basically gave this to the CIA. That's it. He said, get this done. And, you know... He basically ended I, with Al Baghdad, He ended ISIS. You know, ISIS was gone, and he crippled uh, Iran. I mean, people. I don't know if people know Soleimani, and the Revolutionary Guard runs Iran. All right, it's a military communist state. Mullahs may be out there, but they don't matter. That's why it's such a great story. But I, I'm I'm proud of Trump, and I I think yours is a great read, uh, Bill O'Reilly. Thank you for giving us some time on a Saturday. Uh, folks, Bill Riley the O'Reilly Update, all right, every night on WABC, if I have that right. And the name of the book is Killing the Killers, The Secret War Against Terrorism. It's already number one in the bestsellers. All his books become number one in the bestsellers. Bill Riley, great friend. Thank you very much today. Talk soon.
5: All right, Larry. Thanks for having me in.
1: You betcha. Anytime. I'm Larry Kudlow. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Congressman Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor of New York, and I think he's part of the cavalry that's coming to save us. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to the Larry Kudlow
1: Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. We're going to bring in Congressman Lee Zeldin. Um, House member from uh, Long Island. He is running for governor of New York. He is also an Army Reserve Colonel. Lee, uh, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, You know me. You're the head of the cavalry here in New York State, and with the cavalry is going to change things. I want to get your take. Um, Governor Hochul has put up a bunch of things regarding this tragic, catastrophic Buffalo shooting business. And I want to hear you on this. Um, In particular, let me begin with this uh, from the New York Post today. She's ordered up a new state police unit to track online hate speech and extremism. Now, now Lee, here's what worries me. This kind of sounds like a misinformation government bureau thing. State police are going to track down hate speech and then do something with it. I mean, we all want to do whatever we can to stop these horrible episodes. But what is your what is your take? How is the state police going to monitor hate speech? And do we really know what hate speech is anyway?
4: I share your concern here because we all are deeply bothered by what we witnessed in Buffalo. I mean, it shook all of us in the state, in the country. And we want to be able to do something about it. But the idea on a whim to just put out these broad guidelines can end up resulting in people who shouldn't be targeted getting targeted and it not being a a level playing field. There might be somebody running it who has a bias, who has an agenda, uh, and there's just a lot more questions than answers, especially when you're talking about the rights, the privacy. Of individual New Yorkers individual Americans government has a duty to protect that Uh, and there is a possibility that that Liberty that freedom can end up being attacked of people who should not be targeted because you rush to get something done too quickly too broadly too vaguely you're giving powers away and it ends up getting influenced by folks with a particular agenda uh, and it ends up becoming more of a you know left versus right, right versus left, and there's that possibility of it uh, being too similar to what just got shut down, what got paused at the very least, at the federal level, this ministry of truth and uh, all the flaws that we saw unravel with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it could
1: become a political weapon. I, you know, that's my concern. Uh, I mean, it's it gives the state police. I mean, you're right. It could be completely politicized. That just bothers me a lot. The other thing, Lee, is um, uh, Hokel, I don't know. She she's asking if I have this right. Local law enforcement requests red flag orders from local courts. Blah blah blah. But the state legislature doesn't want to empower the cops or the judges, and that's to me goes back to the problem. Of, you know, no bail, no jail. The governor had a chance to make a move on that, firing Alvin Bragg. But to me, it's just what she's saying here is just a bunch of rhetoric because underlying the rhetoric, there's no change to the judicial system and there's no change to the um, lack of backing for cops and law enforcement.
4: A hundred percent. And the governor has the constitutional authority in New York to fire a district attorney who refuses to enforce the law. I have publicly pledged on my first day in office, after I get sworn in, I take the oath of office, I will turn to Alvin Bragg. I will let him know he is fired. It is within the constitutional authority of the governor. The reason why I would be doing it is because across the board, he's refusing to of course, all sorts of laws. We see it in the Post this morning a story of someone who's a gangbanger who had a prior charge, then shoots an, a, an, a, an officer in the leg and then ends up getting released. Uh, we need to start supporting our law enforcement as opposed to attacking them. I believe that cashless bail should be repealed and that judges should have discretion to weigh dangerousness and flight risk and pass criminal record and seriousness of the offense. Hokel came into office. She signed lesses more, uh, and then you had uh, she released 191 people that day from Rikers Island. A whole bunch of them immediately go out and commit additional offenses. Eight thousand people got released by the end of March under mm-hmm. this law who would have still been behind bars, and that list goes on. Uh, one more: the Halt Act. I was contacted by somebody up in Franklin County in the country. In their prison, in the first three weeks of April, she said that there were 28 assaults on corrections officers. Uh, so, mm. ah, man, the whole board should be overhauled. It should be a unanimous vote. The list goes on, and they're going in the wrong direction. This isn't even rock bottom. It'll get worse if they have more time, more power.
1: And, Lee Selvin, again, every, you know, the Buffalo thing was, was horrific, and we, we want to do what we can to prevent this in the future. But, look, at New York State, correct me if I'm wrong, New York State already has the toughest gun laws uh, in America, as far as I know. So what would a Governor Lee Zeldin do? How would you handle this? I've got uh, about a minute and a half left.
4: Well, as it relates to the Second Amendment specifically, I happen to think that our state's gun laws are too strict. Uh, I believe that the SAFE Act shouldn't have been enacted in the first place, and it should be repealed. I believe the Supreme Court should overturn New York State's uh, concealed carry law. Uh, I, I believe that we shouldn't be targeting law-abiding citizens, but we should make sure that somebody like this buffalo shooter never has access to any weapons. The guy, he already committed a felony. He, he threatened to shoot up a, a school. It was all documented. You know, That's what you should be narrowly targeting and not coming out with broad proposals that go after the people who respect the law, the Constitution, and have a right that shall not be infringed.
1: All right, thats right. We'll leave it there. No, that's great stuff. Lee Zeldin, congressman, running for governor. The cavalry is coming to New York. And uh, you know, Lee, I'm unabashed. I want to give you as much time as I can. (laughs) You're the horse. Thanks very much for coming on. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Great Great to be here. You you betcha. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And I'll just get a plug for the TV show, Fox Business, every day, 4 to 5 p.m. The name of the show is Kudlow. You'll love it. And if you uh, can't get hold of it at 4 o'clock... You can find your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. So you'll never miss a single thing. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back on the other side with the fentanyl drug breakout, which is just horrible. My pal Joe Grogan from the Trump White House. Please stick around.
2: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know
0: about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want to turn
1: to an incredibly important problem here in the United States, and that is the fentanyl problem. Overdose rates are rising Fast. 108,000 fatalities in 2021, last year, 108,000 people died from fentanyl, one way or another. And um, this is a story that is inseparable from the open borders problem, one of the absolute biggest failures of the Biden administration. So we turn to my great and dear friend Joe Grogan, former director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. We serve together. He's currently a fellow at the USC Schaefer Center. Joe, first of all, welcome, my friend. I hope you are well. I haven't spoken to you in a while. It's
7: been too long, Larry. It's great to hear your voice and be on your show. Thanks for having me. You betcha.
1: Now, you and uh, our dear friend Casey Mulligan wrote a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal this past week, fentanyl overdose rates are rising. So I'm quoting you, 108,000 fatalities in 2021. Uh, Joe, that number's rising, is it not? And in and, and 2022, it could be worse?
7: Yeah, I don't expect it to get any better. I think you're exactly right. It's it's going almost vertical hmm. right now among uh, whites and blacks. And I think the big uh, finding that Casey and I came up with, that, that no one's really paying attention, is, is the fact that the Black overdose rate has crossed over about years ago from the white race uh, overdose rate. And now it's just going, it's it's just horrific. And at the same time point, the border is wide open and we have a movement to defund the police and not prosecute crimes. And it's, it's not gonna get any better. a matter of fact, as difficult as it is to believe, I think it's gonna get worse. Mm.
1: A quote from your op-ed piece, President Biden's most recent budget pays scant attention to the problem, while his national drug control strategy provides resources like clean syringe programs, isn't that great, that aren't coupled with strategies to help patients beat their addictions. I mean, really, Um, what should they be doing, Joe? I want to get to the border in a second, but what should they have done, this national drug control strategy?
7: Well, first and foremost, looking at the budget, there's six times as much uh, narrative space to climate uh, change yes. than there is to the
1: overdose naturally in the in the budget. Naturally, yeah.
7: And then they, in the section that they do talk about, they talk about drug use and not drug abuse, and it may just be semantics to some people, but really they're not focusing on getting people into treatment who need it getting people sober and they basically are turning um, a whole new in a whole new direction to just decriminalize this and give people clean syringes and and quote-unquote safe places to be high but the human cost for individuals and families who are struggling with this is just absolutely catastrophic so what they need to be doing is turning away from one Uh, not um, prosecuting fentanyl crimes and drug crimes the way they are. They've consistently um, crawled into bed with civil rights organizations who claim that uh, prosecuting fentanyl crimes is going to lead to over-incarceration. I'm certainly not in favor of over-incarceration, but the fact of the matter is we have drug dealers that are running amok through our nation's cities and we are turning too many people over to uh, be victims to this, um, to, to the predations of drug dealers. So one thing we need to do is clamp down on uh, the crimes. Two, we need a total rethink on treatment. Mm-hmm. We have to stop normalizing addiction and drugs. And a lot of these overdoses are recreational drug users who are bumping into fentanyl without really. Realizing it. They may not be looking for fentanyl, but it's in their marijuana, it's in cocaine that they're trying, and then they they have overdoses. And we need to refocus that this is not fun stuff. We need to get people sober, keep them sober, and and redo the way we're doing treatment in this country, which is not effective. We have a terrible failure rate of uh, treatment. We're only getting, you know, you're lucky. You go to a treatment center with a seventeen percent mm. success rate, mm. um, and we've got to we've got to make sure that people get high quality treatment. Increase transparency. Um, there's a group of us, actually, uh, Larry, who from the Trump administration, who have formed a not-for-profit, um, and oh. I certainly don't make any money off this, but to try and give people scholarships to get them treatment when they need it, mm. and high quality treatment. Focus on. Um, you know, getting them treatment for as long as they need, get them high quality uh, inpatient care. And that's what some people need. Mm. And the Biden administration is turning their, mm. um, turning their backs on these people and just saying, Hey, listen, uh, being addicted to drugs is not, not the, the deal. Mm. We're going to try and, and make sure they have clean needles and
1: such. Yeah, you know, Joe, of course, you know, I mean, you and I are brothers, I'm, I'm coming up to 27 years sober and clean. I went through treatment 27 years ago. It worked. So it can work. It can work. And if you need scholarships, scholarships should be available. Absolutely. It's so important. Um, So that's a really good point. Joe, let me turn to the border, though. Uh, You write in this um, most of the additional fatal overdoses post-COVID involved methamphetamine and fentanyl made in Mexico, China, and India. For each overdose death, more than 100 people struggle with debilitating addictions to these dangerous substances. Mexico, China, and India. So I was at the G20 meeting dinner in uh, Argentina, um she, President Xi of China, and President Trump. Okay, we were there. This is a bunch of years ago. I think it was 2019. First thing President Trump asked Xi. First thing, and before we got to the trade part of it, Joe, was to make fentanyl uh, a death penalty in China. Mm-hmm. And she quickly said, "Yes, he would," but I don't think he made good on his promise. And I'm saying, and you could, I want you to tell us about this. What I think is happening what i hear what i read gossip china is still uh sending the raw materials of fentanyl to mexico mexico you know the drug cartels then use their chemistry and put the stuff together and then they sell the goddamn stuff to the united states all right so china is still culpable and mexico is still culpable now, you tell me, is that is that wrong or, or what? Because this is part of the open borders problem. These drug dealers, right, the cartels run the borders, for heaven's sakes. Not the Biden, not America, but the cartels.
7: Yeah, you're exactly right. I, you pegged it. Uh, everything that uh, I can gather speaking to, with law enforcement and professionals is, um, you're exactly right. China uh, did redirect shipments from China that were going directly into the United States as a result of pressure from the Trump administration. But then now they're shipping it to Mexico, where it's coming across the open border, which, you know, was quiescent and under control when Donald Trump left office. And now it's totally lawless and the cartels are moving tons of sentinel across the border which is getting mixed in with all sorts of products, as I mentioned before. It's so inexpensive and so powerful. Uh, the economics of it are such that the dealers are mixing it in in order to um, save money. And you've got to get the border under control if we're going to make any dent. I mean, we made a dent uh, under Donald Trump's leadership on the overdose crisis. It was going down for the first time in since CDC was keeping – data in 2019, It then we got hit by COVID, all the lockdowns, uh, the enhanced unemployment benefits hurt as well. And it's been taking off like a rocket ship since then. And, and a big part of it, the innovation of the illicit market. Now we're gonna need innovation on the part of our pharmaceutical companies to come up with new overdose reversal agents, uh, non-addictive treatments so that people who are in pain don't start with addictive opioids and then move on to uh, illegal drugs. But the big problem right now is not legal opioids, legal painkillers. It's the illegal stuff. And you're exactly right. It's because the Biden administration is not prosecuting these crimes, and they haven't gotten control of the border.
1: We're talking to uh, Joe Grogan, who is a dear friend. He's former director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. Uh, We were there together when I was running NEC. Um, just on this point, Joe. There's, as you know, a big debate about Title 42, which Trump administration implemented. Uh, that could have been one of yours. I don't know. Were you involved in that? Um, yeah, that chart? was
7: in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, That's we what took I plenty of criti- we took plenty of criticism when we put it in place that it wasn't justified. But, it, but uh, boy, was it justified! But it, it was worked. The right
1: thing to do. Yeah, right. it
7: was the right thing, and it worked. All right. So you
1: you were the godfather of that. God bless. But now, Joe, they want to end Title 42. Um, and Bill Haggerty has an interesting uh, thought. Maybe you know about this. Senator Haggerty wants to keep Title 42, but the uh, health care warning would be fentanyl. So that we yeah. you know, that's we could go after the fentanyl and turn people back, you know, if there was any evidence. Not that we check them for COVID. We'll check them for fentanyl. So mm-hmm. uh, in the last minute, what do you think of that? Is that workable?
7: It, it could be, yeah. What you're going to need is you need an administration to show leadership and talk to CDC and say, hey, listen, we're losing over 100,000 Americans every year. This is a critical crisis, and uh, it's a public health emergency. The, certainly the logic to do for Title 42 with um, with COVID applies to Sentinel. Title 42 uh, is a public health Um, action now the thing is though to be honest if they were backing the cp the border patrol and the law
1: enforcement at the border we would be in this discussion uh (laughs) with with you know how about that yeah how how about about remain in mexico how about build the wall right how about you know overfund all the border control agencies how about that
7: (laughs) be an ally to those guys and stop undercutting them and selling them out i mean we we the trump administration got the border under control without title 42 i mean it was an additional um asset but it, look at what the biden administration yeah. has done with title 42 in place mm. and now it's only going to get infinitely worse because it's the only thing that's that's got uh that's got any type of slowdown in the immig- illegal immigration crisis and the lawlessness at the border and without anything else without putting any other controls in place they're just going to pull t- title 42 And in the middle of the summer, Mm. we're going to have far more crossings and we're going to have a continuing overdose crisis accelerating
1: in this country. All right. You nailed it. Joe Grogan, dear friend, director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, fellow at USC, USC Schaefer Thank you, Joe. Great piece. Thank you. All right. Talk soon. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. And Congressman Jim Jordan on the other side of the break. I want to talk to him about federal spending. And I also want to revisit this Hillary Clinton Russian hoax story also. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back.
0: Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. And I'm going to bring in my favorite congressman, probably America's best congressman. His name is Jim Jordan. He's on the House Judiciary Committee. He's a ranking member. And I, I, don't know this. You, you wrote a book a couple of years back. Do what you said you would do, fighting for freedom in the swamp. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to go back and find that thing.
6: Yeah, it came out last uh, last November, Larry. Thanks. Good to be with you. But uh, yeah, and you were part of an administration that did more what they said they would do than any administration in history. And I, uh, we, we, we appreciate what you and. President Trump and your whole team did for the country.
1: Well, you're awful nice, I appreciate it, and I do miss those days. Um, Jim Jordan, just a couple so, of hey,
6: the whole country misses those days, Larry I, seven, I seven out of ten of our fellow citizens think we're on the wrong track. You're, the whole country misses those days, for goodness sake.
1: You know it's, it's we were talking about this earlier. Um, you got this stock market swoon going on now, but the stock market swoon parallels the swoon in Biden's polls. And uh, the, you know, one thought I have is that there is no confidence in this administration. You know, period, full stop. Those yeah. guys are saying this past week they don't look at the stock market, right? Yeah, blah blah. Well, yeah, maybe they should because right. that's what the polls are saying, and that's what you're saying right now. I just want to ask you a, a couple things, Jim Jordan. Um, what is doing, in your judgment, on this? FDA you know baby food baby formula catastrophe, because i 'm reading stuff about it, and i 've talked to a few people, including our friend Marsha Blackburn. I mean, it kind of looks to me like the FDA was the villain here. it isn 't even clear that Abbott actually did anything wrong and probably didn't need to shut their factory down. I mean, is that possible
6: yeah no no, I think you're right, I think I think this is driven by the FDA, and I think in a broad sense. Everything's driven by the signals, the terrible signals the Biden administration sends to the market. You look at energy, you can look at just, you know, the spending and everything they send to, the, to the, the messages in the market just contributes to the shortage, the price increases, the 41 year high inflation. I think that's what's driving it. But in a direct way, you're I think you're exactly right. I think it's the uh, I think it is the the uh, the FDA.
1: Can this thing get solved, though? I mean, what are you hearing? Will they? They let the factory reopen. Can they get it on the shelf? They're talking about two months. You know, Jim Jordan, two months, yeah. is a long time for little babies not to yeah, get sure. what they need.
6: No, 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 no kidding. Uh, I mean, I don't know that there's anything that the Biden administration is capable of solving. It seems like everything they touch gets goes from bad to worse. So we'll 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 see in um, the idea that you're going to pay bureaucrats more money and somehow that's going to solve it. I don't you know, that's never really worked in, in, in the past. Mm. So. Uh, let's hope it gets solved. But what we what we do know, and I think what the American people sort of instinctively get is uh, none of this happened when when you guys, when when you and President Trump and, and, and the Trump administration was in charge. You just didn't have this. So I think it was a great question asked this former Secretary of State Pompeo. Uh, this is in a different context, but asking, you know, would this have happened? Would Russia have went into Ukraine mm. when when President Trump was was in the Oval Office? And and Mike Pompeo said, well, the short answer is I don't know. But I do know this. It didn't happen when President Trump was in office. And I think that says it all. This kind of stuff with the baby formula and other issues, the border, you name it, didn't happen when President Trump was in office. And that's what the American people, I think, uh, instinctively understand.
1: Well, you know, I was just talking to Bill O'Reilly, who's got a new book about about, about killing terrorists. And isn't it interesting that al-Baghdadi, the I- ISIS leader, was killed during the Trump years? And ISIS was blown out of the water. Isn't it interesting that the other one, uh, 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 Al-Samani from Iran, the head of the Revolutionary Guard, who was directing terrorism in the Middle East, he was killed during the Trump administration. Isn't it interesting that with oil prices low because of uh, Trump's policy of energy independence, oil prices hovering around $50 a barrel, uh, Vladimir Putin didn't have the money to invade anybody. I mean, he didn't invade. I think that was a big part of it. Is, are those just coincidences, Jim Jordan?
6: No, no, they're not. And and uh, you know, can the American people have common sense? They see the difference between the leadership we had in the Oval Office just just a few months ago and what we've now seen from the Biden administration in the short time they've been uh, in in power. And I think you could also add to it, and this is you know we we don't like talking about it, but it was because it was so tragic. But the fact is, under Joe Biden, the exit, uh, the, the, the debacle that was the exit from, from Afghanistan, 13 American servicemen and women gave their lives for our country. One of them was from the 4th District of Ohio, the Supiak, back Supiak, his family. So what a difference hmm. the right kind of leadership and, and weak leadership and make when it comes to, um, you know, being in the Oval Office and leaving our great country.
1: Um, one other point, uh, my favorite Congressman Jim Jordan. can. Excessive federal spending and borrowing is one of the principal causes yeah. of the spurt of inflation, which is doing great damage. Yep. Real wages are falling for average families. It's affecting the stock market and everybody's four hundred one ks and on and on, on. So, look with respect to the GOP, the cavalry is coming, and that's the mm-hmm. best news. Will the GOP flat out work to stop spending? Shouldn't we go, yep. you know, Newt Gingrich and I and Russ Vogt and some others were talking about a balanced budget project, limit spending, keep taxes, keep the Trump tax cuts down, deregulate. Uh, there's a $350 billion compete with China bill, Jim Jordan, that in my opinion is yep. utter nonsense. And, and I got yep. one other for you. I I personally am in favor of, of helping Ukraine and $40 billion. But shouldn't someone have stood up and said, wait a minute? Let's finance this uh, by cutting spending elsewhere to pay for it. Yes, that kind of yes. thing. I mean, can we put our best foot forward on federal spending?
6: Well, we have to because we're at a point with with the debt at the level that it is, and the deficits and the spending that you've seen from Joe Biden and the Democrats. We, we we have to. And you you know, Larry, you don't have to dramatically cut spending. You don't have to. You just got to show that you're making progress over time and send that message to the world and to the market. And, and good things start to happen. And then fundamental to all this is the right policy on energy, mm. which is driving so much of the inflation as well. So that's what has to happen. And then, of course, do not allow the Democrats in any way to, to go to undo the good tax cuts that were put in place during the Trump years. Mm. Um, those, those three things. You don't have to take spending from from where it is to, to flat or to negative. You just got to lower the growth and get the economy back where it was. And then you're sending the message over the long haul, we're going to get things moving in the right way. Um, that's what needs to happen. You know that. I think good economists know that. But Joe Biden's ta- ta- you know, out there saying, if we spend more money, it will help inflation. Inflation's mm-hmm. transitory. Inflation's temporary. Nobody believes that because it doesn't, it, it, it's just not, doesn't, it's not consistent with fundamental economics.
1: I mean, I've talked to Kevin McCarthy about this. He's cooking up sort of modernized yes. contract with America. And Jim Jordan, I th- you know, I, a balanced budget, and the way you described it is right. You keep the tax cuts, you deregulate, you go back to the energy deregulation and independence, and you trim spending wherever you can. And, you know, we just read, right, the Washington Post, of all places, $165 billion, $165 billion of COVID unemployment insurance yeah. was stolen, fraudulent, no one knows where it is, that kind of stuff. I, I mean, so... A balanced budget would a increase economic growth, and b reduce inflation, and therefore c help ordinary working folks. Wouldn't that be a yeah. GOP rallying cry?
6: Of course, and 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 again, I, I've, I've said this I guess a couple times, but I think regular families across this country are figuring out that the Republican Party is now their party. The the Democrat Party, I think, is quickly becoming the the party of the you know the so. The elites who live on the coast, who work remote, who can phone it in or proxy it in, and and, and and frankly people who don't work, and we're becoming the party of everybody else. The people who get up and go to work, who work in construction, who work at the, at the plant, who work in agriculture, that's the party we're becoming, and they understand that the Trump policy that you just described meant more money in their pocket, more disposable income for them and their families and their goals and their dreams. That's what they're seeing, and again, I don't know that I've ever seen wrong track numbers as bad as they are now. Mm-hmm. It's over seven out of ten of our fellow citizens say our great nation, the greatest country ever, is on the wrong track. Mm-hmm. That is a huge problem, and I, I think they're they're fixing to change some things come uh, come this uh, fall on November eighth.
1: Well, all right. Cavalry's coming. I just want the cavalry to have the right message and strategy. Yep. That's all. Well well <laughs> Jim Jordan, my favorite congressman, Republican from Ohio, may be running the House Judiciary Committee with some great investigations after the cavalry does get there. Thanks very much, folks. We're going to take a quick break. I am Larry Kudlow. We're going to look at the stock market in detail on the other side. The cavalry is coming. Gosh, I hope so.
0: It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. Hour number three. You can live stream us on the Internet. LarryKudlowShow.com. And join us during the week. Fox Business. 4 to 5 p.m. every day. It's called Kudlow. And... Um, can't make it at four? Just dial up your favorite nine-year-old, who will show you how to DVR. You won't be able. You won't miss a single thing. Here's what you may not have missed the past week: the Dow Jones is off 935 points, the Nasdaq is off 450 points, the S and P down 123. Not good for the year. The S and P is down 18. percent Not quite officially bare. But a lot of the key uh, indexes are way, way below. Some of them are down 40 percent. Actually, if you tack on inflation, the S&P is down about 28 percent. So it's not good. As I said at the opening riff, don't panic. Be calm about this. Don't sell into it, for heaven's sakes. And I do like stocks for the long run. But we've got a few hurdles to go over in the shorter term So let's hurdle with our guest, David Bonson, founder, managing partner of the Bonson Group, author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, and Jim LeCamp, Senior VP Investments at Morgan Stanley. So, gentlemen, welcome. I'll go to you first, David Bonson. I guess it may be a little unfair, but as Jimmy Carter once said, some things in life are unfair, so I'm calling it the Biden bear market. How's that?
8: Just laying it right. Out Just laying it right <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, I Nobody. It's not unfair. It's not unfair because that's what presidents get. They get credit for good markets and they get blamed for bad markets. And it's usually a little bit true and a little bit untrue. It gets overstated in both directions. But the reason why I think you can call it a Biden bear market is because if it were a bull market, they'd be calling it the Biden bull market.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I do think, I mean, in all seriousness, and, and I know this, You know, markets come and go and there's cycles and that's what free market capitalism is about. But I think haunting the market, haunting the market is high inflation, the threat of higher interest rates, the threat of recession. I mean, some of these uh, areas, when you take a look at it, uh, retailers are getting clobbered down 40 percent. Home builders are getting clobbered almost down 40 percent. socks, semiconductors getting clobbered. Uh, down thirty percent, consumer discretionary. David down thirty two percent. It's a, Those are the economically cyclicals, sensitives. Yeah. So there is a re- a recession threat in the air, and I, I want you guys to also tell me about interest rates because one thing. Let me just put this on the table. Jim Bullard of the St. Louis Fed, who in my opinion is probably the best guy in the FOMC. He's a sound money guy. He was talking, David, about a three and a half percent Fed funds rate by the end of the year. It is presently um, three quarters to one percent. So he's right in the sense that they should nail inflation soon and now make things a lot easier later. But I don't know. Next few months may be maybe be difficult. So what you thinking
8: here, buddy? Yeah, well, one of the things I'd say about some of those sectors that have gotten hammered is a lot of them were up so much last year that it was the froth coming out of them. And I don't think anybody believes that there were great policy decisions last year in Biden's first year in office driving consumer discretionary and small cap growth higher. And, you know, the, a lot of this technology stuff is getting killed this year, but it was up a lot last year. I don't think that those things were policy-related. And and so you just get markets sometimes that are divorced from politics, and yet they get way over their skis and the bubble has to burst. And I think that's a big part of what we're happening. But then you look to other aspects of the economy where you and I both know it's policy-oriented. We have inadequate U.S. energy production, and that's directly traceable to uh, the administration's done. So it's a mixed bag in how markets are adjudicating the um, Biden administration. The interest rate story, though, I believe is very complicated. I'm holding in my hand right now, Ben Bernanke's new book. And it it occurs to me, a lot of what we're dealing with, Larry, is that we never undid the monetary policy from the post-financial crisis, that we, we never normalized monetary policy the first time. And so now we're dealing with what we're dealing with here, and there's yet five trillion more on their balance sheet out of COVID. So this is gonna be a brutal hangover.
1: You know, that's a very interesting point, Jim LeCamp, the Bernanke story. First of all, you gotta love Bernanke, who's selling his book and he's going around criticizing the Jay Powell Fed for being too late behind the curve, which is true. But we haven't heard a pip, a peep out of Bernanke. In the last two years, he's said nothing. Now he's selling his book and he's throwing the Fed under the bus. So that's very clever, right? No, wrong. It's not. But then to Dave Bonson's point, it was Ben Bernanke who was the architect of QE. And we'll call it QE, QT, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. And they have got to get out of that box, don't they? I mean, that box has not served us well in the past 20 years.
9: Well, uh, QE2, completely unnecessary and too much. QE3, completely unnecessary and too much. I remember uh, talking to Richard Fisher about uh, seven years ago, and he said, boy, we don't know how we're going to unwind this balance sheet. And at the time, it was $4.2 trillion. Now it's $9 trillion. And most of it was completely unnecessary. Why did they have to keep buying mortgage bonds over the last few years? Interest rates were coming down. Anyway, that was going to happen. The Fed has been – has their fingerprints – all over this, but you know, it's, it's policy makers. It's not just the Fed. Fiscal policy has been terrible too. We had the, stim- uh, the stimulus, which may have helped to a degree, but now consumers uh, are running up credit card debts because they got used to spending and, and now they're having to spend uh, twice as much or three times as much on uh, energy and uh, fuel prices. So y- y- it's all policy makers that are doing this. This has nothing to do At the way free markets would have handled this. Free markets would have handled this significantly better. We would have much lower energy prices. We have much less of a threat of recession. We would have had maybe a mini recession. We, We might have had economic upturns and downturns along the way but they wouldn't have been as severe. And the problem is Alan Greenspan started it. The Fed governors showed and proved they had less and less of an appetite for either even the hint of a recession or a bear market. And so pour the booze in the punch bowl. And and now, you know, half your patients are in the hospital with with, uh, DTs, and everybody else is going to have a massive hangover. And there's no elegant way to get out of this.
1: What do you think about uh, Jim LeCamp? What do you think about uh, James Bullard, Jim Bullard's idea of a three and a half percent fed funds rate by year? End? And, and let me just add, before you jump in, I'm looking at all my stock tables. The two-year break-evens, the two-year tips implied inflation break-evens, CPI, is 390. Okay, 390. Now, that's kind of interesting to me. Um it kind of tells me in some Taylor rule sense that the funds rate ought to be 4 percent, get it above that or four and a half. So I, I sort of think that Bullard is on the right track. Uh, I don't know if the Fed has the backbone to do it. Right. But they may have to do it. But what would that do in the short run? How bad would that be? Because there's differences of opinion. You know, if they really act aggressively, inflation might come down. Uh, in the next 18 months, which could be bullish for stocks. In other words, the tougher they are now, the better it'll be later.
9: You know what? uh, I agree with you. Uh, If you look at the inflation readings, um, they look like looking at just past the tip of Pike's Peak. um, They look like they may have started decelerating, uh, but they're still way, way, way high and have a long way to come down. The problem with the fed's current policy is what they're telling us is we're not going to fix this quickly we're going to try to do it less painfully and just stab you a little bit um every you know every month for the next eight nine months. now, how good does that sound um i i I tend to agree with you rip the band aid now but if, and, mm-hmm. and the the problem is if you look at the longer break evens they don't show. Inflation is going to be chronic or multi-year. They, they show inflation coming back down. And I think what the, the Fed is afraid of doing is getting a massively inverted yield curve that's what the yield curve is saying, too. Mm. When you look at the 210s or the, even the shorter um, ones compared to the 10s, uh, I think they're afraid of, of in, uh, inverting that yield curve too quickly and too steeply and because they don't know what the market reaction is going to be.
1: Dave Bonson, I've got to take a break, but just quickly, David, i got a minute. Um, what's your outlook for the, the Fed funds rate and what's your interest rate outlook in general?
8: There is no way they're going to 350 with the Fed funds rate this year. <laughs> the discussion as to whether or not they should do it amongst us three and with a guy like Jim Bullard is a great discussion, but there is no way they're doing it. And what they would do if they did it is is then force them to come right back to the zero bound the next year they chicken out. <laughs> uh, wow. I believe that they are going to do exactly what we're talking about, slow drips along the way and pray soft landing i i could say more after the break larry all right
1: i just the reason i like it is first of all it's fun to talk about it second of all you're probably right they don't have the backbone but i want to vocalize this is a moment of shock and awe and regime change because i think the inflation rate is going to be high for years if they do this drip drip drab drab thing so and i i don't want to have drip 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 i want to have boom and then, you know, get get back into the business of buying stocks and creating wealth. That's kind of my take. Anyway, let's take a quick break. We got David Bonson from the Bonson Group. We got Jim LeCamp from Morgan Stanley. We'll get their uh, views on the stock market and the stock sectors in just a moment. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around.
0: Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome, folks. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking about the Biden bear market. Biden bear market. Progressivism is killing stocks. Big government socialism. But the cavalry's on the way. and You never know. Stocks for the long run is a hypothesis that I think is alive and well. Our distinguished guests are David Bonson, founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group, author of There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. One of those truths is we don't want progressivism. big government socialism I'm sure that's in there someplace and Jim LeCamp senior VP investments at Morgan Stanley David Bonson what is the I want you both to weigh in how down is down what's the downside in this market and week after week it's falling it's trip 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 it's not good um you know David how far down is it going to go
8: Well, look, the difference right now between the NASDAQ and the Dow is a big story because this was the big theme. I think I talked about it on your show five times earlier in the year. The year 2000, NASDAQ dropped 70% and the Dow is up on the year. Growth after a decade of incredible performance gets killed. Value after a decade of laggard performance ends up having quite a nice long run. That's exactly my thesis now, but for different reasons to some degree. The Dow is down 13%, a little more than 13 after last week. Um, that's not good. It's caught up with some other sectors. Energy's still up, healthcare's still up. Consumer yeah. staples finally got hit this week. Utilities are fine, so the defensives are okay. That's like year 2000, Larry. But the Nasdaq is down 27. 27- year and 30 from the high. Mm. And to me, that's what we're dealing with right now is a repricing of overpriced stuff and the market now paying attention to better value. I would not be touching the good value stuff, the dividend growers, the energy, the defensives. Um, Look, the average drawdown every year, even in good markets, is about 11% in the middle of a year. This is 13 on the Dow. That isn't that bad. It's just that the other stuff, S&P, NASDAQ, the big cap, they're getting killed.
5: So
1: you're, uh, if I can translate that, you're betting on dividend stocks, high-paying dividend stocks. Is that the strategy?
8: Yeah, I believe that dividend growers have proven to be the most resilient for decades mm-hmm. and that we had a very rare decade after financial crisis where everything went up, but things that were getting the most multiple expansion went up the most, and that was FANG. That was the QE1, 2, and 3, and 4 and 5. It was zero interest rate policy. The market really didn't have a down year the entire last decade. Even COVID year was up. 2018, it was barely down a couple bucks. Other than that, it was a absolutely unheard of decade larry Mm. and so i think now we have to look back and say okay what are the things that are most likely to generate a return going forward? It's free cash flow, not multiple expansion. Mm. Those are in the dividend growers, they have better balance sheets. They're less exposed to whatever it is the Fed has to do. Where I disagree with the bears right now is that we're asking people who have been wrong on every prediction they've made for 30 years to tell us how this is going to play out. And that's not the same as me saying they're wrong. Do
1: you have anybody? Because I'm
8: not going to I'm not going to assume they're right. Any um,
1: any individual bears you want to talk about
8: <laughs> oh gosh yeah, i do <laughs> we're probably friends of ours you know yeah. i don't want to call any names out but, but well, peter schiff knows who i'm talking about Let's
9: put it that Jim, LeCamp. you can well, add david stockman uh, and john malden onto that list as well
1: actually that's right and i don't yeah malden's a good guy too i mean his yeah, he is. philosophy on life is very good but he's always wrong all right jim lecamp how far down is the market going David Bonson sort of didn't answer that, but he did give us a strategy. So, you know, I'll give him one for two. How far is this market going down, Jim LeCamp?
9: Well, unfortunately, although generally I agree with what David said, uh, bear markets are generally like Stephen King novels in that everybody gets killed in the end. (laughs) And uh, that's where I think uh, ultimately uh, we haven't seen the kind of washout with breadth because of the sectors that David was talking about. Uh, that typically occur a bear market bottom. Uh, we haven't seen many signs. Oh, yeah, We haven't seen the volatility index, the put-call ratio, et cetera. Get to levels that normally would indicate abject fear. Sentiment is terrible. Mm. If you want to look at shoots, the semiconductor index is trying to double bottom, and sentiment is just god-awful. Mm. But it, there's not enough signs. Uh, so I think uh, we we wash out to maybe 3,600 or so. Mm. And But at this point, uh, even if you get down to 3,700, I think risks and rewards start to balance out, meaning you have Instead of a straight down market where the S&P 500 is down uh, six weeks in a row, uh, you start to have uh, short covering rallies mixed in, uh, et cetera, and maybe maybe start building a base. But I think should, uh, um, investors need to be patient because these things do take uh, a long time to play out. The good news is, if you look at Atlanta Fed GDP, it does not signal a negative quarter next right. quarter, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to have recession uh, instantly or immediately, or
1: or it's, an earnings collapse, a profit or collapse. an earnings doesn't collapse doesn't look yeah. like it. But so,
9: but where I think we end up with is a stock pickers market. Um, oh to, to God, the thought.
1: I hate stock picking markets. <laughs> I, hate, I hate stock picking. Well, it hadn't in been general. one. It hadn't
9: been one since two thousand and nine. But fellas, but the Fed was adding liquidity for did, you know for twelve years. Yeah, but David, now
1: now they're not. David Benson, I want to say buy the indexes. On the way down in this market, and then hold them for fifty years, I mean the cavalry's coming number one, but number two, stocks for the long run. go ahead, yeah. I-
8: I, I don't agree, Larry. But the reason is because the indexes oh, have changed. Oh, they're just totally dependent oh, on the mega cap names, oh, and they're totally dependent on multiple expansion. Right now, you just said the S and P is down oh eighteen and a half percent. Well, what's the forward multiple right now? If you get I if get, you get two hundred and twenty dollars of earnings,
1: I gotta you're still get it
8: nineteen times.
1: I gotta 200. get out. I gotta get out, folks. Stocks for the long run. And we'll talk about the individual bears next week. Jim LeCamp, thank you. David Bonson, thank you. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do money and politics on the other side of the break with Liz Peake and Steve Moore and Elon Musk. How about that one? I'm Kudlow. We'll
0: be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Okay, I'm Larry Kudlow.
1: This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Live stream is LarryKudlowShow.com. Fox Business Network, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. The name of the show is Cudlow, And two of the stars and mainstays of the show are Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. His latest book is Govzilla. Kids, welcome back. I want to talk about my hero, Elon Musk. Okay? This is a wonderful story. So Elon Musk correctly predicted this is so wonderful so musk comes out in favor of free speech that's the twitter purchase but free speech in general so that's one sin in the left-wing uh woke world then he comes out and says you know the democrats used to be kind uh but now they're mean and i'm gonna vote republican all right that so so he's for free speech and he's voting republican and sure enough Within days, we get this uh, sexual harassment lawsuit, I guess. I mean, this is just right out of the left-wing playbook. It's so reminiscent of Trump. I don't know if you remember all these people that Trump was harassing on airplanes. And turns out the main one didn't sit next to him. She couldn't have gone over the console. She was – and I think she wasn't even in the goddamn plane. But so here's Elon. uh, We'll get you to talk. Attacks against me should be viewed through a political lens. This is their standard, despicable playbook. But nothing will deter me from fighting for a good future and your right to free speech. Then he says, uh, "Yesterday they began they began brewing attacks of all kinds as soon as the Twitter acquisition was announced." In my 30-year career, including the entire Me Too era, there's nothing to report. But as soon as I say I intend to restore free speech to Twitter and vote Republican, suddenly there is. That kind of uh, encapsulates it. Liz Peek, I will go to you first. This is the old Democratic playbook, right? Hillary Clinton's back again. Elon's going to be a free speech Republican, right? It doesn't get any worse than that.
3: Yeah, well, I I mean, honestly, I think we've all witnessed just an incredible character assassination of Elon Musk since he did offer to buy Twitter uh, and more dangerously came out and said he was doing it to provide the country with an open forum. How terrifying is that to Democrats who have thrived on misinformation and just outright lies about everything? I mean, it is astonishing to me that so few of... Uh, that the major uh, calumnies that have really driven that party have really kind of come on to be history now. They'll just accept that Trump uh, was elected by Russia, and they accept all kinds of things that are just complete fabrications. So Elon Musk really has an important role to play here, and I'm, I, I'm anxious that this deal not fall through. Uh, it could, for a whole host of reasons not I mean, not including the fact that the market is collapsing and and the $50 price now seems pretty generous. Uh, but of course, they're going to go after him on he- sexual harassment. They did it to Kavanaugh. They did it to uh, every Republican trying to run for office. And they'll do it to Elon Musk. Thankfully, thankfully, he's a pretty tough guy. And he's not just going to roll over uh, and accept this. I mean, I don't know if you saw right now, there are tweets out asking for tough lawyers to join his legal team at SpaceX. I don't know why it's SpaceX. Uh, maybe that's kind of like more neutral politically or something. But I tell you what, I wouldn't want to go up against Elon mm. Musk. I, I think Joe Biden mm. looks like an idiot for having taken him on, as does Elizabeth Warren. None of those people can hold a candle to him in terms of his intellectual kind of uh, uh, ingenuity, yeah. if yeah. you will. He's a tough guy. Yeah.
1: Well, I, But Steve, more think of this— for the woke left, the only thing worse than supporting free speech is voting Republican. Yeah. Elon Musk yeah. is going to vote Republican. He said that. I and mean, then it was it was wonderful. And within, I don't know, 36 hours, suddenly this woman appears <laughs> on a sexual harassment lawsuit. I mean, come on. Yeah. A leads well, to B. What a great world this is.
10: Well, look, Larry, you and just don't get it. I mean, when you say you're voting Republican, that's hate speech, <laughs> right? Uh, right? That's it's a, right. Hate crime. Yes, it's a it's a hate I crime. Know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, oh god. So, look, I, I, I think Liz summarized that. Well, I just want to do a shout out to my new second favorite CEO or former CEO, Jeff Bezos, yes. for, you know, saying, hey, raising taxes, raising spending when we have high inflation. What a stupid idea is that? And by the way, Bezos is a is a pretty liberal Democrat. He's been a Democrat. Whole, I think I think Elon Musk has been a Democrat most of his life as well. And I just find it fascinating that, um, you know, when, he, when the response by the White House of, of what uh What um, Bezos said when he said, you know, it's crazy to raise taxes and have another, you know, trillion dollar spending bill when we got all this inflation. And what was the Biden White House response? Oh, he just doesn't want to pay his fair share in taxes.
1: (laughs) You know, that's ridiculous. Elon doesn't want to pay his fair share in taxes. (laughs) Last year, he only paid 11 billion in taxes. (laughs) That's, you know, he's that's it. That's not enough. Come on. The woke crowd, you know, it's it's the, I believe, the single largest personal tax collection liability in the history of the IRS. But he doesn't but, pay but his you fair know,
3: share. Corporate yeah. America the point, thinks the point they point can is- appease these woke leftists. They yeah. never will. It is truly the mouse, if you give a mouse a cookie, right? You <laughs> kind of sign into the ESG stuff, and you talk about all these sort of benefits for your workers that seemed heretical uh, you know, three years ago or something. All these kinds of things, they're kind of given, they give in, and then they kind of come up to a brick wall, which is, guess what? This government, the Biden government, and the leftists behind it do not want you to prosper. And I think that's the sort of notion that finally hit Jeff Bezos in the face. They want higher taxes. They want you to unionize your Mm. workforce. All the things you've done at Amazon that have made it an incredible company. I don't like Jeff Bezos' politics, but, man, Mm. he created an astounding company. And he sure did. Now he is confronted with the ultimate payback. Uh, from having appeased and put in office, because let's face it, these guys put this guy in office. All of a sudden, he's like waking well, up to the the danger of that. Well, I Fine just time.
1: I just wonder, Steve. You know, from what Liz is saying and, and so forth, uh, with Bezos kind of leading the charge, and he's going after the White House, you know, for high taxes and and dodging inflation and so forth. It may be that the woke CEOs. Are now going to be on the run. That they're not. You know, we're not going to hear from them. They're going. They're just running away from Biden, whose polls are in the low thirties and whose wokeness is so unpopular. Whereas we may have seen the peak in woke, Steve Moore. That's what I'm thinking.
10: <laughs> well, I hope so, but I'm not convinced of that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was. I took a United Airlines flight yesterday. I had a big. You know, message uh, that, you know, before you take off, that that we at United Airlines are going to be carbon neutral by the year. Oh, I know. How how does does, does an airline (laughs) have you an electric (laughs) airplane with with 200 miles? Like extension cords. I mean, it is so crazy. And then you've got Exxon who basically, you know, doesn't even defend the product that it produces. So uh, it's pretty bad out there in corporate America. I don't know if you saw, by the way, Larry, on the subject that your good friend, Paul Krugman, mm. had column, probably an all time new low for Paul Krugman blaming. The um, shootings in Buffalo on supply siders. Yeah, (laughs) because because, you know, we're we're spreading all this misinformation and all this hatred. And this is what's leading to the killing. I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty acid environment out there right now. And the reason I brought up that kind of crazy response by the White House to Bezos saying, oh, you don't want to pay your fair share of taxes. They don't want to engage in a debate. I mean, let's yeah. have a debate about whether that's what so everything is just ad hominem attacks against people.
1: You know, Liz, um, that's interesting. I don't know. You, you were on solo with me on set. I don't know if we talked about it, but this Krugman column was the sickest thing I've ever seen. He Sick. yeah. He basically said from the Laughter Curve to <laughs> to January sixth to Buffalo. Yeah. And, and yeah. I had Arthur on. In fact, I had Arthur as the lead guest, you know, to deal with it. And, of course, Arthur is such a class act. He he went through it almost analytically. But that's a very sick, despicable thing that Krugman has done, even by his own standards. This is a new low. Now, my question is, is that an act of desperation? Because uh, he and that uh, crowd know they're on the losing side.
3: You know what? I, I was just going to jump in and say that's exactly what it is, Larry. Yeah. I think I think people like Paul Krugman who have finally seen uh, their ship come in. You know, all of a sudden they're getting all these left-wing agenda items the, presented to the American people. You have states that are incorporating them, like New York and Ca- and California. And guess what? They don't work. And so they're on the defensive. And this is his response. It is the most bizarre connecting of dots. By the way, there was another really kind of amazing connecting of dots today, which you guys may have seen. The New York Times spent months, apparently, in the archives trying to find and found uh, literature about how Haiti's problems date back to the 1700s when they had to pay. Uh, taxes and, and reparations to France because they basically defaulted on debts and so forth. So all the problems in Haiti, which is a totally corrupt, mm-hmm. crime-riddled nation, now we can put back hundreds of years ago on the French. I mean, these people's search for scapegoats in, when things go wrong is so preposterous, but I think Paul Krugman's thing crossed a line. Yeah, I, I honestly sick. don't know really, uh, how he can get away with that.
1: Sick and despicable. Yeah, uh, and it is. But, Steve Moore, I know you have to leave the catch plane. I want to stretch this segment just a little bit. Um, in the hotline, you mentioned the forty million dollar, uh, $40 billion appropriation for the Ukraine. And then you ask a question that, that I liked, and I've been asking this. So I happen to favor the assistance to Ukraine, and I want uh, Ukraine to win and Putin Russia to lose. But there was no effort. No effort by, that I know of by any significant Republican except Rand Paul. But what about an inspector general to monitor this, and why not pay for it by spending cuts elsewhere? And this is part of the well, GOP you know, spending yeah. problem. So, you know, why didn't they want offsets, Steve Moore? That's, what, I guess, the big question.
10: Well, that's a good, great question. And I, I think, you know, the Repo- things look so good for Republicans right now in November, because people are totally totally disgusted with what's happened to the economy and American energy and all these things. But the one thing that people always ask me is, well, will Republicans be any better? <laughs> they bring this, this massive debt and the, the spending down. And, and my answer to that is, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if they will or not. But if people feel like there's really no difference between the Republicans and Democrats on these massive spending bills then I think that, you know, that, that Republicans could, could uh, not see the great November that, that they want. So when they vote for bills like this, and then we mentioned last week, wait, look, why can't you find $40 billion of savings? Mm-hmm. There's a report in the Washington Post that $160 billion was stolen from unemployment. Mm-hmm. Right? So come on. Mm-hmm. The, the money is there. But then they have this absurd, um, what do they call it, the uh, China bill. You know, which is just a big subsidy. We talked about this uh, last week to the semiconductor industry. $300 that billion. these up, it's $100 billion total in all these new bills they want to pass. And now they want another COVID bill. You see that one? They want another COVID spending bill.
1: So, Republicans, see, I, we had all these senators here in New York. Uh, John uh had his fundraising group, and there were six, seven, eight senators. Now, a bunch of them were conservatives, but they all got up and spoke, Steve. And not one of them, not one of them mentioned uh, spending restraint or balanced budgets. You know, stop. They want to stop inflation. They want more freedom. But nobody talked about stopping the spending or, heaven forbid, a balanced budget. I'll give you the last word before you catch your
10: plane. OK, well, exactly right. And Republicans have to be the party of limited government. And uh, the fact that they won't pay for any of this, I think, is really problematic. And by the way, I'll just do a nod to Rand Paul. Yes. I mean, he stuck his neck out there and said, look, let's audit these programs. Let's make sure we find offsetting cuts. And I hope Mitch McConnell is listening because that should be the strategy from now until November and, All right. and after. All right. You
1: go catch plane, right. Steve you, Moore. Friend. Thanks a million. Liz Peek, hang around, please. You and I are going <laughs> to speak the truth right after this commercial break. I'm Kudlow, folks. Please stick around. From Wall Street
0: to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show.
1: Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. Steve Moore's taken a plane to someplace Uh I guess he's taking a plane on a carbon – it's a carbon-free plane. Is that what United <laughs> said? <laughs> They're going to be net-free carbon. Well, I thought planes use fuel. Anyway, Liz, um, the disinformation board seems to be going down. The crazy uh, Mary Poppins woman is going down. <laughs> so George Orwell and the truth board. But the, it's a serious question. As you follow this story uh, – they were shamed and ridiculed, and, and the and the woman with that crazy Mary Poppins thing really did a lot of damage. So that's great. The question is, Liz, do you think they'll try again? Do you think the oh. Bidens have given up on controlling free speech or what?
3: No, I, I think it's everywhere uh, that this particular unit of DHS – uh, is is not actually going out of business, it's being sort of decommissioned, it's on hold, if you will, mm. because I think they, they ran into such an incredible iceberg of uh, ridicule and humiliating commentary that they just couldn't pursue it, and particularly they couldn't pursue it with this woman who had signed on to probably the greatest political scandal of misinformation ever, which was the whole Russiagate thing. Mm. And I do think, Larry, even though Americans are sort of tuned out of the nitty-gritty of Uh, the, the Sussman trial, perhaps, and not following every nook and cranny of it. The truth is, having Hillary Clinton's name in the headlines, again, as the perpetrator, as a direct link, according to her campaign manager, Robbie Mook, to all that scandalous behavior that undermined President Trump for four years, and it really did, and cost the American people so much time, anguish, and actual money in Mueller's investigation, I think that's all terrific. And I think the opportunity... For the government to kind of sit on all the stories about that and so forth, going to want to do it. They're going to try and ramp back up. But I think having someone in charge of that bureau who was such a master of disinformation was just one one bite too big. I just don't think they could do it.
1: You know, let's stay with that for one second, because, Liz, uh, Hillary fessed up or no, she didn't fess up. No, Mook, Mook fessed up in court. That's a very big deal. And this whole story is now exploding. Hillary signed on to it, and yes. so she knew all about it. And uh, undoubtedly, you know, they're looking for computer experts. It was all BS. They knew it was BS. But you know whose name pops up in this list? Jake, Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan. Who is right? now the that nas- you just said. Yes. Yeah, thank Jake you. Jake Sullivan.
3: I, a big, I agree. I've My been, husband has been stomping around the house for like two days about Jake Sullivan. Why, how could he be our national security advisor? Right when he's in, in, complicit in really this incredible dirty trick. And it goes beyond dirty tricks. It was involving lying to the public, of course, but also to law enforcement agencies. And I, I think Jake Sullivan is in his, to, up to his neck in it. I, I don't know how he stay in office, but I, Gary, other than your voice on radio now talking about it, I haven't heard much talk about it.
1: You know, I've, I've tracked it a bit also on the TV show. I've just been watching it because – the Durham stuff had come out earlier and Sullivan's name was engaged. But this is the most prominent example. And you'll you probably saw the Wall Street Journal editorial this morning where they mentioned Sullivan prominently. And look, I think uh, saintly husband Jeff Peak is right. <laughs> how can how can this guy who is in the middle? How can he negotiate with Russia? Which he is doing, he is part of the group that is talking about whether it 's peacekeeping or whatever. How can he do that, knowing that he was engaged in this entire Russian hoax, which, as you pointed out correctly, not only not only the, the money involved over the years, but disrupting the Trump presidency. How can yeah. they not go and, and ask this guy to resign
3: i You would think that there would be enough shaming of Sullivan. And just that he'd be so tainted uh, that they would not want him in his prominent position as national security advisor. I can't understand it, except, let's face it, the person who uh, also was involved, Barack Obama. You know, he apparently had a meeting where he also kind of signed off on this whole adventure. And we really have never heard very much about that. The one good thing I think that comes out of this, and maybe this is fanciful, but Hillary Clinton's name continues to come up mm. as sort of a Hail Mary for Democrats if they can't figure out anyone else to run in 2024. Obviously, she's trying to put her name out there. And it was very interesting to me that it took the uh, locking up of Giselle Max Maxwell's uh, legal background and all the testimony and so forth. They literally put that under lock and key. And literally the next week, Hillary Clinton was out doing sort of campaign styling style events this is going to be another thing that puts her back under wraps i don't think that she i, I mean i cannot imagine I, I couldn't imagine anyway frankly but i cannot imagine that she still has credibility having been personally now tied to this it says too much liz
1: this is one of the rare moments when i have a disagreement with you why i so much want her to run Oh <laughs> I think it would be wonderful. Yeah. I mean the 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 cavalry's coming. I just yes, get her out there. Hillary for president and uh Andrew Cuomo for governor of New York.
3: Yeah. Or I, a VP, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean
1: I oh, know, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean I really I just think that would be a, a, a fabulous thing. Um we got less than two minutes left, Liz Peak. Um you used to be Cracker Jack Wall Street uh brokers, researchers, so forth. The Biden bear market. What do you think? The Biden bear market, the progressivism, big government socialism bear market. How long is this thing going to last?
3: Well, I think you just have an incredible uh, cataclysmic coming together of events. Obviously, all the really all eyes are trained on the Fed and whether they can manage this uh, slow down in the economy so as mm. to get a ring out inflation without thrusting us into an, a recession. And I, I'm very worried about it. I don't think there's a recession this quarter or next quarter, but I think after that, the compilation of incredibly bad consumer sentiment numbers mm. consumers are really freaked out because a lot of people have never seen high inflation before. They don't know how it's going to impact their day to day or their potential retirement. Uh, I think the Fed's likely uh, ability to calm inflation, get it out of the system without procuring a a recession, uh, uh, next to none. They Mm -hmm. almost never do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hopefully it'll be mild because the consumer still is in financially reasonable shape. But boy, and I have to say, it's not all Joe Biden's fault, but a lot of it is his fault. Mm -hmm. I think we just had one policy blunder after another. All right.
1: Great stuff, Liz. Thanks a million. Liz Peek, folks. Great to be with you. Yes, of course. Great to have you. The best of the best, Liz Peek. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. Every day, Monday through Friday. I'll be back here on radio next weekend. Thank you.